good to see you here at the five o'clock service. Uh, last Sunday, of course, was uh, our special Pentecost day, and we were having wonderful concerts together with Israel Hutton, and I hope those of you that wanted to come were able to come and enjoyed, enjoyed yourself. I want to say that next month at the five o'clock teaching service, we have a brand new series. Now, if you have got your Revival Times, please turn with me to page 13. If for some reason you haven't got your Revival Times yet, stewards, if we could just make it available. I know you've done it already, but just in case someone uh, forgot to uh, put their hand up or came on later in the service, make sure you've got your Revival Times right now. Uh, oops, someone's guitar. Feel free to uh, look after it. Um, can we talk about Islam? This is a new series for the month of June. And um, I want to talk a little bit about this. I also want to mention this especially to those of you that are watching live now on the internet or those of you that later on in the week usually watch the 5 o'clock teaching service. I know many people do join us live and others do also during the week when we put all of our services uh, on our media page on kt.org. People will watch the teaching service later on in the week. Well, this Can We Talk About Islam, we are not going to be televising that on the internet. It won't be up there, so you won't be able to watch it later on in the week. You won't be able to join us live. For these particular four sessions on the internet, you'll need to come here and be part of what, what we're doing. And that's because of the subject matter that we're looking at. We want to be free to be able to talk about Islam. That's what it's called, talk, Can We Talk About Islam?, now, what this is, this isn't just a special uh, series that's taking place for, for us here at Kensington Temple. In fact, this is the first of taking this series right across Britain to different churches and to different situations, not just churches, where people such as Jay Smith, a great friend of Kensington Temple, he, he's there every Sunday that he's in Britain at Speaker's Corner, uh, speaking about issues of Islam, witnessing, talking about Christ, talking about these situations, and sharing it with Muslims. Uh, also, Alan Craig, a great friend, again, of Kensington Temple, who's worked very strongly in politics for Christ in areas such as Newham, and is an expert in this field, and also Peter McAvenna, that for many years was uh, Colin's research assistant. Colin Dye, our senior minister, had a research assistant, and there Peter learned a lot about this material and is now working full-time on this. If you look at the titles, we've got The Spread of Islam, Basics of Islam, Evangelism Among Muslims, and Campaigning for Christ Amongst Muslims. This is all about how to reach out and to love and effectively share the good news of Christ with our Muslim colleagues and friends. That's what it's about. In order to do that, we need to have some basic understanding of what they believe, uh, where Islam came from, and how to effectively love and touch them with the message of Jesus. And so this four-week series is perfect for people to come along and get the basics, a basic orientation that will give you confidence, awareness, to be able to make friends and discuss at the right times with Muslims and know something about where they're coming from and, and how, how to reach them. And so we're encouraging 
people to come along to this so that as many people in Kensington Temple as possible uh, have an awareness. We've done things like this before, but it's important for us to keep refreshed in these areas. And so also making a special plea to cell leaders. Please consider bringing your cell group to these sessions in the coming month of June. Whatever else or whatever other services you enjoy on Sunday, think strategically. If I was a cell leader, to know that my cell members in these next four weeks could have an awareness from people that know what they're talking about uh, and, and, and have an awareness of what's going on, what's happening, and how to be effective, I think it would be four services that would really help us in our vision to reach out and, and, and to understand what's going on. And also, if you've got friends uh, that you think will, will enjoy this, then it's all there for you. This evening at our Holy Spirit fire service, I'm going to be speaking about a very, I'm ministering about a very important topic. I'm going to be talking about the fact that there is a war going on in our minds. And uh, the way that I, I look at it is your mind is a bit like a courtroom. Your thoughts and what is happening in the courtroom of your mind is that often you have the devil or Satan and his name means accuser. And so in your mind, often, sometimes it's our own insecurities, but often the enemy will place words of accusation, words of slander, say you're no good, you're nobody, you can't do anything, uh, you're a waste of time, look how bad you are, criticizing you, slandering you. Anybody ever had thoughts like that? It comes from the enemy. And so you've got Satan and, and he's sort of the prosecutor in the courtroom of your mind. He's prosecuting you. He's accusing you. He's slandering you. He wants to bring you into bondage. But then you have in your courtroom the Holy Spirit. He's called the comforter. And, and that word is paraclete, which means advocate or defender. He is the counsel for the defense. And the Holy Spirit, he is speaking words through the word and also uh, through, through his own spirit coming to you defending you, encouraging you, assuring you. Last Sunday, RT brought a message of the Spirit's assurance, didn't he, on Pentecost Sunday, if you were there on Sunday morning. He is bringing words of forgiveness, words of healing, words of strength. And so in, in the courtroom of our mind, often we have the accusation of the enemy and the defense of the Holy Spirit. But guess who is the judge in your mind? You. You, you are. You, in the end, decide who to believe. You, in the end, decide to say, yes, Satan, you are correct. I'm nobody. I'm no good. I'm going to give up. He wins the verdict. Or you say, wait a second, Satan. You're a liar. It's not true. I believe in what the Word says. I believe in what the Holy Spirit says. And you make a decision and a judgment to follow God, not the enemy. I'm going to be ministering that tonight with the power of the Holy Spirit, I hope, uh, uh, this evening. But in this last session, we've been spending two months looking at various aspects of spiritual warfare. And if you're interested in that or you're new to it, you can go on our website and go back to 
other sessions on this and other services. But in this last session together, I wanted to spend some time because I, I hadn't really mentioned the role of the demonic or the role of demons. We've spent time looking at what spiritual warfare is, that it is the battlefield of the mind. We've spent time in Ephesians chapter 6 talking about the schemes of the enemy and the wiles of Satan and, and how he tries to undermine God work in our life and how we can put on the full armor of God to defend ourselves against his work, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of truth, and how to use that offensive word of God to push back the enemy in, in our lives. We looked at areas like Ephesians chapter 4 that speaks about don't give the devil a foothold or an area, and how the enemy tries to get an area in our lives to put down a stronghold or a base camp. Last time I spoke, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke on the subject of strongholds. And we were talking about a stronghold is somewhere where the enemy wants to get a fortified area in your life. You know, you, you may be walking with God in many areas of your life, but the enemy tries to build a fort, a stronghold. And that stronghold, out of that stronghold, it seeks to dominate other areas of your life. How many of you know, very often, and I'll speak about this tonight, very often you could be going, doing very well with God, moving forward in many areas of your life. But isn't it true? It's always the thing that hasn't yet been healed, hasn't yet been touched, that is the big thing in our mind. And sometimes we don't see how far we've really come with God because I don't, if you're like me, and I think you are, we, all, we always tend to see the negative, the thing that we've not done, the thing that we should have done. And, and, and again, that's the enemy wants to keep us looking at the things that we haven't done. And I said that the way to walk with the Spirit is simply to focus on the area that the Holy Spirit is focusing on in your life. And it might be very different to what you might think it might be. You cannot solve all your life issues today. You can't do it. If you, if you try and solve everything in your life, in one day, what will you do? You'll get tired, you'll get exhausted, you'll give up. You just say, Lord, what area are you working in my life right now? And that's where you cooperate with. He knows step by step and day by day how to bring you on a journey to freedom in Christ and to victory. He's not going to do it all in one day. He's going to teach you step by step. We looked at that, and you can go back to that two weeks ago. That's a little bit of a journey of where we've come. But today I want to speak a little bit about demons. Because how could I speak about spiritual warfare and not mention these? We looked at the origin and nature of Satan in the... Um, first session that we did, we looked at where he came, how he had fallen from heaven, how he was the morning star. We looked at the fact that it was the five I wills of Satan that caused him to rise up, to challenge God, to try and be God, that caused him and a third of the angels to be thrown down. And we looked at him as a person and him as, a, as his schemes, because we know that if you want to defeat an army... The most important person to understand is the general. If you understand the general, how the general works and operates, then you've got a pretty good understanding of how he's going to come at you. Uh, I mentioned um, that in um, 
uh, uh, World War II, General Patton, the great American tank commander, when he came to North Africa to fight against the undefeated German tank commander, Rommel, what he did was something different. He took Rommel's book on infantry attacks and panzer attacks, and he took the book that he'd written many years earlier, and he had, it, had his enemy, Rommel, General Rommel's book, by his bedside. And he'd read portions of it every night. So he began to get inside the enemy's mind, and he was able to defeat him, because he began to know his enemy. That's what we've been doing in this spiritual warfare series, trying to know our enemy, not going where the Bible doesn't go, but sticking to Scripture, because all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproving, and growing in God, including the Scriptures on spiritual warfare. But what about demons? We, we, when you read the Gospels, you can't help but notice that as well as teaching and proclaiming the Gospel, and healing and miracles. One of the main activities of Jesus was delivering people from demonic oppression. I mean, it's there again and again and again. In fact, Jesus didn't need to chase after the devil. Wherever he went, demons were manifested because of the power of the kingdom that he was carrying. So I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about this and how it's possible to be uh, demonized or affected by demonic activity. Now, we see in the New Testament records of demons. We see the different things that they can do. We see they can torment people. We can see that they can affect people with sickness. There was a woman bent double, and that was a demonic. It wasn't, it wasn't a physical sickness alone. It had a demonic root to it. And when Jesus dealt with the demon, she was freed. We've seen how it can cause uh, people to have problems of the mind, and Jesus is able to deliver people from that. Think of the gathering demoniac. Now, the important thing to recognize right at the beginning here when we talk about demons is that God works on healing the whole of a human being, body, soul, and spirit. And so that means that when God brings the healing, that sometimes the healing is physical. We see in the New Testament in Gospels that there are uh, people that have epileptic fits. And some of those epileptic fits are the direct uh, problem that are caused by a demon. But there'll be others where it has nothing to do with a demon at all. It's, it's an imbalance, a med medical imbalance, and Jesus healed them today. And so whatever situation we're facing... We have to ask ourselves the question, and the Holy Spirit, what is the origin of the problem here? And uh, we can't just make just blank cases, oh, this person's had a fit, she's demonized. Well, if that was the case, then my daughter would be demonized, because she regularly has fits, she's on medication. And thank God for the doctors that God is using, and we're believing for a healing. And she's not demonized, I'm telling you, she's filled with the Spirit, speaks in other tongues. So just because someone fits doesn't mean that they... But it doesn't mean that you'll never come across a situation where there might be a demonic influence. Or what are we reading in the Gospels? And so we need a holistic uh, approach to all of these things. 
God uses medicine. He gave us the natural medicine. God gave us breakthroughs in, 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 in the medical field. God gave these things to us. But also we recognize there might be times where there are demons at work and actually they're quite easily to be dealt with and uh, we need to deal with those things. Uh, now, where did these demons that we see in the New Testament specifically, that, that we see Jesus, where did they come from? What were their origin? When we looked at the origin of Satan, we looked at key scriptures in the Old Testament that spoke about how, and the New Testament, but spoke about how he'd fallen from heaven, rebelled against God. He was a cherubim, one of the highest angels that was there to guard the glory of God. An incredible, powerful angel. So powerful that he actually believed that he could beat God. He could, he could become God himself. Now, he was deceived, but he was so powerful, that's, that's why he could be self-deceived. And he was thrown down because of his punishment, and angels came uh, with him, a third rebelled. But where, what about these demons? What, what are they? Well, right from the beginning, I want to say we can't say for sure what the origins of demons are. Perhaps demons are the fallen angels that when Satan fell and he brought those, a third of the angels, Revelation tells us, fell with him and rebelled against God, perhaps those are the demons. I've got a sneaky feeling that they are. Remember that in Ephesians chapter 6, it says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principality and powers in various orders of authority. And we see that in the angelic world as well, there are various orders of authorities. There are archangels and normal angels. There are specific angels like Michael that we see in Daniel that has a specific role over the nation of Israel. So that is one of the views, but I just wanted to mention a few other views that are out there, not because I believe that they're true, but because every so often you'll hear somebody say one of these views. One of the uh, popular views, especially in the United States of America, is that the demons are disembodied spirits of a pre-Adamic race. Don't worry, I'll unpackage that. What do I mean, disembodied spirits? of a pre-Adamic race. Well, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, there is what people talk and call the um, gap theory. The gap theory. This is very popular in such Bibles as the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, this gap theory, people like uh, Kenneth Hagen uh, believed this, wrote it in his book, Benny Hinn believes this uh, as well. So I'm just showing that this is a popular view. So I want you to be aware of it in case you come across it. Now, when we read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then number verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, when I talk about the gap theory, this is the theory. In, in some Bibles, you'll see that when, the, when you see Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you have verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it's like a new paragraph. Because the way that the Hebrew is written, 
at the end of that verse, there's like, well, I'll put it in English. For, it's like a full stop, like a new paragraph. And so people look at this and say, oh, look, there is a gap between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It's called the gap theory. And what they say is this, ah, God created the heavens and the earth. But then something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. Why do you say that? Well, there's a gap. There's like a full stop new paragraph in the Hebrew. Well, what do you mean something happened? Well, in verse 2, we read this. The earth's without form, it's void, and it's dark. And the theory goes, God would never create something without form, dark, and void. And so this teaching says that in this gap between verse 1 and verse 2, something happened. What happened? Well, I'm not going to go into detail, but, you, but if you hear this type of talk, you, you'll know that this is the gap theory. The teaching is, is that God created the world and it was full of creatures in verse 1. Most of those creatures were dinosaurs. And then what took place at that time is that there was the rebellion of Satan and the devil, and that that world that was created in Genesis 1 was judged by God. Genesis 1, verse 1, judged. And at that moment, all of those dinosaurs were destroyed. This is even before we get to verse 2. The dinosaurs were destroyed, the devil fell, and the demons were some sort of race of beings that existed in the world before Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now, some of you are looking at me like, that's weird. Yes, it is. But you'd be surprised, I've already mentioned a couple, of how many people believe that. So if you think that's weird, then when you hear somebody talking about the dinosaurs being destroyed before Adam was created, when you hear someone talking about demons being a race of beings that lived on the earth in Genesis 1 verse 1, and, and then there was a gap, and God destroyed them and started all over in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, then that is what we call the gap theory. And it is quite popular, especially in areas of America. Be aware of that. I don't want you confused. Part of these teaching services are to make sure that we are on our guard and not confused. If anybody gives you that and starts to say that's the case, the easy way to answer that is that couldn't possibly be true. Why? Because death came into the world through Adam. That was the first time that death entered the world, when Adam and Eve sinned. So there was no pre-Adamic race, a race before Adam. The, 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 the dinosaurs did not uh, die out before Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, they, they grew into, in, in, into, dis, into um, distinction. Um, sorry? Extinction, thank you. <laughs> Instincts and extinction. Extinction, the dinosaurs were extinguished after the flood when everything changed in the environment of the world. But that's another story. Other people believe that demons um, come from Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1 to 4. One of the most confusing passages in the Bible. 
You wouldn't want to make a doctrine out of it. But let me mention it because somebody might bring it up. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now, the Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, and these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. We then move into the story of Noah and the flood. Now, this verse, or these verses that I've read, are confusing. And you have to do a lot of study to, to try and figure out what they're about. So you don't want to base any major doctrine on it. But some people say that these sons of God that are mentioned, that these were angels. And that before the flood, angels came down and mated with human women. And out of these came some offspring that were the Nephilim or the giants. And then when the flood took took place, that these offspring between angels and women, they were the demons. Well, again, it's not my subject today to deal with these passages. There are many different ways of, of looking at this passage, by the way, and, and not all of them believe that what we're talking about here are angels, but I don't intend to get into it. It is confusing, but this is where some people say that demons uh, come from. But I personally believe that they are fallen angels. Although I can't be sure about that. It just seems to me uh, the, the best view that we, we have here. But I also wanted to, to back up and let you have a know about it. So we're not completely sure how demons originated, but we do know more about their character. What are demons like? Well, when we read the Gospels, we can make a number of assertions about the nature and characteristics of demons. The first thing is, is that demons are spirit beings without bodies. That's for sure. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, it says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. The picture there is that an unclean spirit or a demon has been operating or influencing a human host, a human being in some way or, or, or form. And then when that person has been delivered from the influences of this demon, what does the demon go about to do? Well, it doesn't have a body to work through, so it looks for some other physical body to influence, to do its work. We sort of see this, don't we, in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 12, um, the story of the Gadarean demoniac. Do you remember? Jesus says, what is your name? And, 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 and instead of the person uh, saying, my name is Jack or Brian or whatever, a demon answers and says, we are legion because we are many. Some people falsely teach that in order to deliver someone from a demon, you've got to find out its name. 
It's crazy that some of these people go out, what's your name, what's your name, what's your name, to try and find out a demon's name. And they say, well, Jesus asked what the name was. He asked what the name of the human being was, and a demon answered and said, this is who we are. It was a description that allowed us to see how powerful a deliverance took place in that man who was probably the most highly demonized that anybody could be. Uh, he was breaking chains. He, he was all over the place. So um, we don't go around asking demons what their names are because that's not in the Bible. That was actually an ancient Roman cult uh, way of dealing with things because the ancient Romans and Greeks believed that if you knew somebody's real name, you could have power over them to do sorcery. And so when Roman children were born, they were given a secret name and a public name because if anybody knew their secret name, they believed that they could do magic against them. And so I just wanted to throw that in because that, that is very prevalent today in, in, in deliverance ministries. But the point of this is that there were many demons affecting this man and holding it in bondage. And when Jesus was about to cast them out, they said, send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. What does that show us? It shows us that, that, they would, that they're looking for, end. if they can't be in a human body, it was like, well, send us into the pigs then. It was like anything but, but a human body. And when Jesus did that, he allowed that to take place, it was a demonstration and sign to the power of the kingdom of God in casting out demons. So they don't have physical bodies, but these demons are part of uh, the demonic kingdom of Satan. And all the attributes of Satan are found with these de demonic powers. They seek to oppress. They seek to do the, the work of evil. And they seek to influence people's lives, dominate people's lives, and use people's lives for, for the devil's work. The second thing we see about demons is that they have emotions. You say, is that important? Yes, because this isn't some sort of inanimate force. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Demons also believe and shudder. So demons have emotions. They, could, they displayed fear when Jesus came on the scene. They shrieked out when he cast them out at times. They had fear of the power of Jesus uh, because they have personality. Personality. Thirdly, uh, another attribute of personality, demons can have knowledge and intelligence. Acts 19, verse 15. Acts chapter 19, 15. And the evil spirit answered, they can talk sometimes, and said to them, I recognize Jesus... I know about Paul, but who are you? These were the seven sons of Sceva that were going out, casting out demons uh, in the name of Jesus, who Paul knows. And they were doing all right to begin with, with some of the little demons. But finally, they came up to some of the higher-ranking demons, who sort of like said, what's this about? Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And if you know the story, they end up being kicked and, and battered all the way down the street. They have knowledge, you see, and an intelligence. 
they would proclaim Jesus' identity, wouldn't they, often before being silent. Example, there are Mark chapter 1, verse 23. But you see this again and again. Jesus is walking along the crowds, and all of a sudden a, a demon c- cries out, We know who you are. You are the Son of the Most High. And what did Jesus do? Shut up and come out. What One of Jesus' great statements and ways of dealing with demons is he didn't converse with them. But he told them to shut up. And it's a very powerful Greek word when, Jesus says, when it says Jesus told them to shut up and to come out. The word shut up literally in the Greek means be muzzled. You know, like a dog is yapping or is dangerous. And so what do you do with that dog? You muzzle the dog. You put a muzzle on so it can't bite and it can't bark. It's muzzled. And that's the phrase that Jesus uses to demons. Be muzzled. He doesn't need demons to bear testimony to who he is. Uh, he wants to, to, to deal with that. Remember Paul, and we had that, that sorceress, and she was full of demonic power. And she was doing all sorts of sorcery and, and, and foretelling and witchcraft. And she was following Paul around. And she was going, these have been sent by the Most High to tell you the way of salvation. And wherever Paul went, she was there. Listen to these. These are telling you about the way of salvation. And I thought, why do demons proclaim Jesus as the Son of the Most High? Why, why, why would the demonic power in this woman proclaim, listen to Paul, because he's preaching the gospel? Well, they were trying to get in on the act. So if someone listened to Paul on the basis of demonic utterance, well, they'd be back at the Ouija board the next day, wouldn't they? And so after a while, Paul got, had enough, and he cast the demonic power that energized her sorcery out of her life and caused a big uproar because nobody could make any money out of her anymore. Demons have supernatural strength or can manifest supernatural strength and power. Uh, we, we looked at Legion where when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. It was demonic power. What are demons doing? They are promoting Satan's program. They are out to blind people from the word of God. Um, They they are out to, I I, I suppose, if if I'm going to sum this up, The best way to understand how demons work is to think about the name that we looked at earlier on in this series, or one of the names of Satan. Because as you look at the names of Satan, they're the names that reveal his character. How many ever heard of Beelzebul? And remember when Jesus was accused of casting demons out by the power of demons? He casts out Beelzebul by the prince of demons. And Jesus answered them and said, how can... Satan cast out Satan. Remember that? Well, the word Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. That's where that book comes from. Or Lord of the Dung Heap, the Rubbish Tip. And I said that that name was a great characteristic of Satan because where do flies, Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Dung Heap, where do flies congregate? Where do they multiply? Where do they live? Where do they manifest? In a clean, detox. Kitchen? No. No. 
if you want to know where flies are, it's where dirt is, isn't it? Where rubbish is. That's where they, that's where they like to be. So Satan, and we've, we've gone through this before, Satan wants to work where sin is. He can't work where there's no sin. He can't work where there's a cleansing of the blood of Jesus. So we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, which says, don't give the devil a foothold. The word foothold is topos, from which we get topography, which is the study of area and land and maps. Don't give the devil an area, a stronghold in your life. How, how do you give the devil an area or a stronghold? Well, we looked at the passages before, and uh, the verses before and after that in Ephesians 4, and we saw that what Paul was saying is don't get embroiled in sin. Don't, don't, don't let these strongholds appear. Why? Because they will attract the attention of the enemy. And so demons will often attach themselves to areas where we allow sin to reign. Now, I've spoken to you before. Don't worry that you're not perfect. I don't want you to go out and think, oh my God, I'm not perfect, so I must have demons flying around. No, it doesn't work like that. But what I am saying is that where there is persistent and consistent and deepening sin in an area of your life that is beginning or has already taken hold of you, you need to be aware that that's where the enemy will try and work. The enemy, where there's persistent and deepening and, and strongholds of sin, what does the enemy do? It comes along and it tries to get behind it. You know, we all have temptations and we all have tests that we face. And these temptations that are in our lives, it's what's common to man. And I may have areas of temptation in my life that you don't. It just depends who we are, what we like. Some are tempted by power, some are tempted by sex, some are tempted by riches. Uh, there's all these different types that are there. And these are issues that we're dealing with our lives. Well, how does the demonic act? How does it... It tries to see those areas that you're weakest in, and it tries, if, you're, if the stronghold of sin gets there, what does it come along? It comes along, and you know it's demonic, because it turbo boosts what's already there. The enemy can't turbo boost something that's not there. Jesus said that the prince of this world has got nothing in me. He tried to externally test Jesus. But there was nothing in Jesus that the devil could find and say, ah, here's a bit of sin. Here's some arrogance. Here's some pride. Here's some deepening lust. Let me get behind this and turbo boost, accelerate this. What is a demonic temptation as opposed to a normal temptation? Well, it's a little bit like peer pressure. What do I mean by that? Well, imagine there's a child in the school playground and sees a packet of cigarettes and a lighter had been left by somebody. Picks up the cigarettes and the lighter, sees there's some cigarettes in. Never had a cigarette in his life, but now he's wondering, there must be something in these cigarettes, so why would they... He's tempted. What is he tempted by? His own desires. That's the sort of temptations that, that, that all human beings... What's a demonic temptation? A demonic temptation would be like, when a boy's doing that by himself, then suddenly all his friends come by. What have you got? Cigarettes. Oh, go on, smoke one. No, I don't know. No, go on, go on. Take one. What, you frightened? What? Peer pressure. Now it's doubly hard for that boy to resist temptation. You know, there was a psychological report on the psychology of teenagers and how that in teenage years, as different things are taking place on the inside, 
that, that they have found that one of the most dangerous things for a teenager is peer pressure. That teenagers under peer pressure will do things that they would never think of doing without peer pressure. And it's a certain psychological development that leaves them open to that at, at that time. And then hopefully they will, they will, they will grow, out, grow out of that. Well, that's what demonic power is like when it tries to do it. So, so you, you find that. Now, with normal temptation, what do you have to do? You've got to take it to the cross. You've got to get your cell members around you, those that you trust and say, I'm struggling right now. Can you pray with me? Can you stand with me? I can't do it alone. You know, a cord of three is strong and all, all these types of relational help. But when a demonic temptation comes, not only do, do you need to do those things to get strength and help from others and prayer and accountability, but you've also got to, in the name of Jesus, break the power of the enemy. It's not hard to deal with a demonic power. You just ha the, the hardest thing is to recognize that it is demonic. Listen to me. It is not hard to deal with demons. The biggest difficulty is recognizing that they're actually active in an area. I found that the only times I've had, and we don't, we, instead of using the word demons, we can just use demonic activity. Again, I don't want you to think that there are little, little imps and demons running around with different names, and one's going to attach yourself and get inside you and live in you. I think that's the wrong way of seeing it. The best way is to understand it as de demonic activity that is trying to, to, to deceive us. All the attributes of Satan that we've looked at, the deceiver, the liar, the accuser, the tempter is also called. All these that we've looked at, they're also expressed through demonic power. Now finally, I want to ask the question, well, when we talk about demonization or demon possession, what are we talking about? Jesus cast out demons from people's lives, so what is demon possession? What is demonization? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demonized? Well, the first thing I want to say is this phrase, demon possession, is not biblical. A problem is, is if you've got an old King James Version, it talks in the Gospels about people being demon-possessed. There was a woman possessed of a demon, etc., etc., etc. But that is not the case. That's not what the word is. The word for demonization is demonizai, which is a Greek word that means under the influence of, demon, of de demonic power. The only person that you perhaps you might call demon-possessed was the Gadarean demoniac, yes? But, but even he still at times could, he could come to Jesus, he could speak to Jesus, but he was under such demonic power that most of his willpower, hadn't it, had been submerged. But apart from that, you wouldn't call any of the others that had illnesses or, 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 or fits or other, other aspects demon-possessed. They were still in possession of their own understanding and will. And the word doesn't mean that. When you read the word demonized, it's not demon-possessed. It just simply doesn't mean that. But the word demonized means to be under the influence in some way and in some sort of grade of demonic power. And so when we talk about demonization, we're talking about the influence of the demonic in someone's life. I don't like the idea of, you know, people saying, oh, can a Christian have a demon like a demon can live in you? Some people say, well, that's impossible for a Christian to have a demon because how can the Holy Spirit have a roommate that's a demon? You know? Have you ever shared a house with somebody? Well, how can the Holy Spirit share the temple with a demon as a roommate? Well, 
that's slightly a bit of a daft thing to say because you could say, how can the Holy Spirit share uh, with sin in a house? I mean, we all sin, and you could say, well, how can the Holy Spirit live in our bodies when the things that we think or the things that we do? So that's slightly a, a weird way of doing it. But, but I wouldn't talk about it like that. It's demonic oppression. It's, it's strongholds. It's the things we've been talking about over the last two months. And, and, and this demonic influence can be very temporary. It can take more of a permanent stronghold and deeper stronghold. So there's many different grades of influence of demonic power. So at one level, look at Peter. Peter, the great apostle. In one moment, when Jesus says, who do people say I am? He says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, whoa, that, that is the Holy Spirit speaking through you. That is my father's revelation, true? A couple of seconds later, Peter is saying, you are not going to the cross. Be quiet. He's rebuking Jesus. You're not going to the cross. You're not dying. God's with you. We're going to restore the kingdom. I don't want to hear you speaking about this anymore, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, get behind me, Peter. Exactly. He realizes that at that moment, temporarily, because of Peter's fleshly mindset, you think like men think, not like God. Because of his fleshly mindset... He is allowed a little bit of a Beelzebub dirt patch. And the devils thought, ah, Peter's arrogant. Ah, Peter doesn't, Peter doesn't understand the cross. And so the enemy supercharged Peter's already sinful mindset. And Jesus said, hey, this isn't just th you thinking like a, a human being in the flesh. There's, I, I can sense demonic power, turbo boosting what you're doing. And so Jesus went right to the root in that instant. He went past the flesh, it was flesh, but to the root that was powering over it and turbo boosting, said, get behind me, Satan. And then he turned to Peter and said, you need to sort your mind out because you've led a stronghold of the enemy in. We've already looked at Ephesians chapter 4 and says, don't give the devil a foothold. It's not about being totally possessed or not being possessed. You know, you can have very powerful, sanctified Christians but they can have an area that the enemy is running all over. I mean, sometimes you see this in leadership, Christian leadership. And the reason I talk about Christian leadership is because Christian leaders are most under, the pre under pressure by the enemy. I'll be speaking tonight at 7 o'clock about how the enemy tries to accuse you and slander you while the Holy Spirit defends you in the courtroom of your mind. But then I'm going to go on and say, but there's another way that the enemy in the courtroom of your mind tries to deceive you. And often, this is what leaders have to especially beware of. The, de the devil begins to puff you up. He begins to tell you who you are. How dare they speak to you like that? Don't they know who you are? Don't they know what they've done? You need to do something about that. And the Holy Spirit is saying, forgive them. Take it to the cross. You see? And then you've got that argument against you. And uh, you, in the end, will make the decision. Are you going to go the way of pride and Satan? Or are you going to humble yourself before Almighty God and be lifted up? There's many ways we've looked at these strategies. And, and sometimes the enemy can have an air of our lives. And you know what? It's not hard to deal with. You don't need some super deliverance ministry with holy water to drink. You can go to churches today in London where you'll be given holy water to drink. And I'm not talking about Roman Catholic churches. 
They'll pour water on you, get you to drink water, special oil produced from Israel. Somehow demons don't like Israeli oil. Special, special anointed people, that they'll do all sorts of asking names. You don't need to do any of that. You just need to recognize, ask the Holy Spirit to recognize an area in me. And let me ask you a question. There's no fear here, by the way, because Jesus has given us all authority over all the works of the enemy. The, the only thing that is a danger is to be deceived. Like I said, the moment I have recognized the demonic in a situation or in an area of my life or in an area of someone's life, I've known exactly how to deal with it. It hasn't been a problem. But it's when you don't recognize the enemies at work. That's the dangerous thing. You don't recognize as the demonic element here. Or the person that you're speaking to doesn't recognize that the enemy's got a foothold in their life. That, and usually that's because of pride. The enemy's not got a foothold in my life. Be careful if you think you stand. Beware that you don't fall. So all we have to do, we don't have to get worried. We don't have to get concerned. We just have to say, Lord, Holy Spirit, show me where the enemy's getting in. I've seen that times in my life, times where I've got really angry. We all get angry, but times I've got angry, and that anger hasn't gone away, and that anger is getting bitter, and that anger is filling me with rage. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, wait a second, this, is, this isn't just me being angry. There's some, there's some attachment on this. This is trying to consume me. This, this isn't the Holy Spirit. This isn't the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Me blaming the other person, getting angry at them, not taking responsibility for my... This, this, this is keeping me awake at night. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking, the enemy's here too. I need to deal with my anger, but, but there's something on top of this, driving this. In the name of Jesus, Satan, loose your grip. And then I take it to the Lord to fix that area. Amen? We don't want to get under... The power of sin. But at the same time, we don't want the devil to get his attachments onto those areas. Because if everything else is going well in, in one area, but you've got a problem with money, what's going to bring you down? You hear what I'm saying? Nothing to fear. In fact, out of everybody in Kensington Temple, London City Church, blessed are your ears. Because you've heard today something that you might not have known last week. The danger is not for people that are here today or going and looking at the spiritual warfare. The danger is not. In fact, they're in a better, clearer, safer place than ever. The danger is for people that are out there that don't have a clue about what we've been talking about in this series. That's why I'm glad that they're all up there on the media for those that have ears to hear. Well, God bless you. Uh, those of you that can stay tonight, you know where we're going to be ministering and where we're going. If you need to go, have a wonderful week. And don't forget, mobilize for these next four weeks because it will give you an awareness of what's going on. And, and when you read the news and you see what's happening in Islam, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it might be, you'll say, okay, I understand. I've got greater understanding and truth is power. Amen. God bless you.